Welcome to the Next Level Leaders Podcast with me, Dr. Joseph Walker. This podcast is designed to offer strategies in moving vision to reality. Leaders can expect to be mentored, inspired, and challenged to succeed at the next level. Prepare to be exposed, empowered, and equipped for excellence. I'm excited today to share with you part two, the podcast we started to help you understand my journey and story on how I became a leader today. You know, my experience when I got to Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt Divinity School was simply amazing. It changed everything for me to be in a new space and to be in a place that I'd never gone before. But I knew it was important to align myself with the faith community. So I went down this street called Jefferson Street. Streets kind of have significance to me. I went down Jefferson Street and I saw this red brick building and this church called Mount Zion. I went in and I walked in that church, 21-year-old minister. When I walked in, man, I sat in the service and it wasn't the kind of service I was used to. It was a little traditional, well, a lot traditional. And I got up and walked out, went down the street to another church. It was a little bit more contemporary, but still traditional. And I remember very clearly being pushed by the Spirit to go back to the place that I'd left. So I went back down the street. Isn't that interesting? And when I went back down the street, I never will forget this lady, Margaret Wilson. She was about 70 years old at the time, and she reached over and grabbed my arm. She said, you're a minister, aren't you? I said, I am. I didn't know how she knew that. That was a certain look. But she took me to meet the pastor, Dr. E.W. Roberson. And I went to meet Dr. Roberson, and the rest is history. I became his first associate minister and mentee. And I began serving this man of God and learning from him and watching this congregation, Mount Zion, founded in 1866. Imagine that, the same year of Reconstruction in America. This is amazing, right? Because I'm a young minister from Shreveport, Louisiana. Here I am now serving Dr. E.W. Robeson, a pastor of a church with a great legacy and lineage. And I'm sitting there watching all of this unfold. You know, it was important for me while I was in seminary, getting this theoretical knowledge that I had somewhat to actually work it out. We call that the praxis of ministry. It's one thing as a leader to have theoretical knowledge, but it's another thing to be practically literate. You can't be theoretically proficient and practically illiterate. And so for me, it was about making certain I had a place that this stuff would live out in the real world. Being in North Nashville at that time, North Nashville had a great legacy in the history, right? It was a place where, wow, it was economic artery of the black community. Uh, Jefferson Street had, you know, really so many artists that would come through. They had black businesses. They had so much. And uh, a lot of that had been cut off when the interstate came through and uh, redirected traffic away and suffocated many of those businesses out. Mount Zion yet remained with a few other businesses. And I was a part of this very storied historical church on Jefferson Street. And I had no idea of the underlying tension that was brewing in the church while I was serving naively as a young minister in seminary. You know, the church and the leader at that time were at odds, conflict, and I was being shielded from it purposely. And the pastor would put me up to preach and 
I mean, people enjoyed hearing me preach and I'd preach again. They'd enjoyed hearing me preach. And it went from one time a month to twice a month, sometimes three times a month. And uh, I didn't understand why the regularity was happening like that. But I think the heart of that leader was to prepare me to succeed him in a very unorthodox way. He knew his tenure was coming to an end. I didn't know. I just thought my gift was being used. I was having an opportunity to preach and share. But good leaders always forecast. They always make plans for the future. And Dr. T.W. Robeson, to his credit, he was making plans for the future. He loved Mount Zion Church, and he knew God had sent me there. When I was getting ready to graduate from Vanderbilt Divinity School, the church and Dr. Robeson decided to go in different ways. Now, I've always been a loyalist because I understood that leadership is about loyalty. Never trust people who are not loyal. It's important. Loyalty, I'll take that over anything. Loyalty matters to me. Even today, I was at the phone with Dr. Robeson for over two hours, crying, saying to him, wherever you go, I'm going. Wherever you go, I'm going. <laughs> and Dr. Robeson was adamant about me staying behind and to continue to serve the people at Mount Zion, even though those folks didn't want him anymore. I yielded reluctantly, stayed at Mount Zion, and was there in April, right before my graduation. The church voted and called the 24-year-old minister from Shreveport, Louisiana, from 1834 Cheatham Street to the Mount Zion Church to serve as pastor. It was my first church. There I was, a young pastor, single pastor, never married, fresh out of seminary, all this knowledge I have, allegedly, and now <laughs> about to practice this out on God's people. Never baptized one soul before, never did any of that. First baptism I had on the deacons and his family, they're still a part of my church today. But it was amazing, right, because I saw this church begin to grow. You know, I've always been one of those leaders who've always thought outside the box. I felt like if I was going to grow a thing, I had to do something that was non-traditional. I guess that comes from watching my dad grow a business, watching Southern's band grow, watching everything I've been attached to be innovative and creative and outside the box. So that's all I knew. I never was a conformist. I always was one of those who knew how to push the envelope, but do it with the, in a way of integrity and do it in a way that didn't threaten other people who were there. So I went on the college campuses, 24 years old with a backpack, went on the college campus and started meeting students, inviting students to my church. And I remember saying to my leaders in my church, we should start feeding these kids. Because that's what happened to me when I was at Southern. I remember Dr. Jesse Bilberry at the Mount Pilgrim Church. They fed us and it clicked. That's what God was doing. He was showing me something. If you feed these students, they'll come. He fed them. And oh boy, they started coming, tens, then to hundreds. And it was amazing because Mount Zion, the first year I became pastor, took in more people than it did over the last 20 years. It was amazing to see that level of growth. And it scared me and it scared everybody around me. Like, what's going on? I mean, people started labeling it, you know, maybe it's a cult. What's going on down there? All those folks are drawn to that church. God was doing something. So you have to understand, man, growth is not something that just happens. It is intentional. It has to be on purpose. There's some systems and things we'll talk about later help you understand how things grow. It just doesn't happen. There are things that have to be in place to accommodate that growth. 
because there is a difference between growth and swelling. I, pastoring this church, realized that, wow, while this church is growing, I you know, realized, man, I uh, see this wonderful young lady in the congregation. She's a dental student at Meharry. You know, we were drawing so many professional students and undergrad students, and I fell in love. Diane Greer Walker. That was my wife, man. We we started dating, and uh, she's from Jackson, Mississippi. And man, we it was something. We had a time. Uh, she was such a sweet spirit. Uh, she loved Mount Zion. She loved me. Took my hand in marriage, and we began to build a life together. Think about being married in the vortex of growth. The whirlwind of that is that it can cost you a lot. She was a much greater wife to me than I was a husband to her. My focus was so on grinding and growing and getting the church going. In those early years, Mount Zion was moving so fast and hundreds were joining every week and we were building and doing all this and all of that. And it was just, I lost sight of what it meant to focus on her. She was so gracious about it. Part of leadership, man, is understanding. Abraham was told to leave where he was. He was to take Sarah, his wife, with him. God gives you a partner, man. You have to take your partner with you. You can't leave them behind. For me, watching Mount Zion grow exponentially was amazing. Mount Zion Church began to grow over 175 people. That first year, we were already over 1,200. That second year, we were over 3,000. It just kept growing, thousands and thousands, until we got to a point it was going over 1,500 people a year. Imagine that, man. The level of growth, just thousands and thousands of people. We grew to over 17,000 before something happened. On national TV, things are happening. You hear that? I'm on national TV. Things are happening. And I go through one of the most painful experiences of my life. You see, just because you're growing and just because things are happening doesn't exempt you from personal tragedy. And for me, how to deal with that tragedy is something I want to share with you today. She was having some unusual pains and things. And we decided it's time to go to the doctor and get a biopsy, what's going on. And while she got that biopsy and she was still in recovery, the doctor came in and gave me that look and said to me that she has a rare form of neuroendocrine pancreatic cancer. I never shall forget those words the rest of my life. It took everything out of me to hear those words. Got to start chemo right away. Um, we do this right, she could live five years. I said, what? Five years? And man, it was like the wind was knocked out of me. I remember, man, uh, watching her get the news and how she did it with such grace. And she just really became a soldier about it. She's leading the women's ministry and they had these camouflage pants on and they were like, they're going to be warriors. They're going to defeat this. And it was amazing to watch that. And I'll be honest with you, man, she was much stronger than I was. I remember the first day of chemo, it was Tuesday. And Tuesday, I was typically prepared for Bible study on Wednesday, and I 
sitting there with my Bible, sitting there with my pen, and I'm going to be there to support her. And I've got my Bible and my pad ready to write a message of life for people, and I'm watching this chemo come through this, this thing slowly before it gets into her vein, and I'm just weeping, saying nothing's going to be the same once it comes through this and hits her vein. And I couldn't do anything. I couldn't stop it. And man, when that chemo hit her, man, I knew things were going to be different. I watched her go through some of the most painful and private moments ever with such grace. What chemo does to the body and does to the spirit it was just amazing. Here I was going between this dichotomy of what I call the mountain to the valley. I'm on the mountain ministering to people at Mount Zion, thousands of people. Wow. Preach bishop, preach bishop. Then I go home to this singular pain in private space watching my wife fight for her life. I'd watch people get healed publicly in front of me, but it wasn't happening at home. Uh-huh. It was that the devil began to interrogate me. You know, sometimes when you're in a place of isolation, you start getting interrogated about your worthiness, your ability to lead. You know, you can do this for everybody else, but it can't happen at home. That's that moment, right, when you realize how incredibly efficient and proficient you are publicly, but privately you feel like a failure. That was the paradox I lived in, public success and private failure. It was tormenting, man, tormenting. That manifests in a lot of levels, right? Because a lot of leaders deal with that duality, man. You know, you can you be a rock star out there doing your thing, you know, getting great victories and wins, and you can't figure out how to get a win at home. Watching, um, watching her struggle to this situation deteriorate before me and going out and minister to the people and lead them was it was a difficult season. I wrote a book about it called Life Between Sundays, and I wrote that book because she was born on a Sunday and she died on a Sunday. And it was that idea that we often showcase what we do on this. For me, these platforms on Sunday, but my life is really lived between Sundays is what happens in between those spaces. It's like the struggle. Nobody ever knows to just see you come to the moment of producing what you produce as a leader. You show up to the boardroom, you show up, you know, in the classroom, you show up, but nobody knows the stuff that happens in between. And, for me, that was the part of trying to reconcile that, trying to work through that, and it was it was tough. It was beyond tough. And so as a leader, it was incredibly important for me to try to make certain that I continued to push through. She was encouraging me, you got to get up, you got to go, you got to make this happen. And I remember going to visit her as often as I would when she would be in the hospital and She'd have those stents. This one last time, though, was in January. I remember her leaving the house. It was right after New Year's Eve. And I remember, never shall forget that second week. Oh, boy. I remember it like yesterday. It was 2005. That second week, January, the ambulance came to get her took her out of the room. She was so frail. I had never seen her that frail before because she was always wrapped under the sheets and, you know, and I knew she was never coming back home. 
And it was a moment in which I, I never shall forget following the ambulance to the hospital. And I remember coming one Sunday, the 17th of January, 2005. I remember coming that Sunday to the hospital. I remember ready to preach that night and uh, that day rather. And I remember uh, some things happening even prior to that. Let me back up and tell you this because community is important. Our, that Friday, I was at the hospital by myself and with her. I'd stayed all night and fallen asleep. And it was early Saturday morning. My friend, Ricky, Ricky Smiley, tapped me on the shoulder. He had a box of donuts. He had flown in from some show and just to sit with me. And I just cried on his shoulder. And I realized, man, that's what a friend is, you know? He just said, man, I just wanted to come be with you, man. And we set up Saturday. We just, it was in the wee wee hours of the morning. Know that I know that'd be the last weekend I'd have with my wife because she did some things that were interesting. We would talk, we'd always have these signals, you know, like if, you know, she had a, you know, uh, this idea of a do not resuscitate thing. We talked about that all the time. If something happens, you know, you make sure you fight for me. I'm going to fight for you all the time. I'm going to do it. And, and I'd gone to something and come back. My mom, her mom were there and others and, the doctor had come through without me being there. And I remember she telling the doctors and telling them she didn't want to be resuscitated this time. When I came back, they told me that. And I went in the room by, my, by myself. And I remember her not responding to me, which was rare. I think that she purposely didn't respond because she wanted to protect me. That's what she was always trying to do. Protect me, protect me, protect me. And that Sunday morning... I came to visit on the way to church. And the nurse said, you need to stay today. And I sat down, I changed, because I never miss Sunday morning. If I miss Sunday, people knew something was wrong. And I remember, man, it was Sunday morning, like nine o'clock. I sat by the bedside and I just was singing hymns and praying to God. And I had stepped out the room. I remember my friend, Dr. Andre Willis, came running down the hall and telling me to come quickly. And she had slipped away just that quick when I walked out. It was 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, and I just remember screaming and running to the window and pounding the window, and I just, I was in so much pain. It was just so tough, you know, to see somebody at 37 years old slip away like that, man. So much life ahead of them. It was just so painful. And simultaneously, Mount Zion Church has just started praising worship, and they have no idea what's going on. They have no idea, just know I'm not there. I later learned and one of my ministry leaders, Elder Tello Farrell, he stood before the congregation with so much strength and grace and explained to the church what had happened. And that mass response of grief, I never shall forget hearing that in my head, just how the church gasped and cried together. And I was in so much pain and it was it was just immeasurable, right? And when you go through that as a leader, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. And I'm only bringing this up because I want you to understand that sometimes when you see leaders lead, you, you, you have to understand the level of compassion, where it comes from, the sensitivity, the cadence, the, the thoughtfulness. It comes out of your own experiences. And, and, and even sometimes their reservations and why they may not want to do things because it may revisit certain things in their own lives. We are human beings. And as a leader, you got to own what you are comfortable with. Even today, I still struggle with 
certain funerals. I struggle with funerals, period, because it just constantly rehearses for me that whole process. And I think you have to be honest with that with people. You know, we buried her. It was a homegoing celebration that she would have been proud of. And, you know, I hear I moved on into a whole new season of my life. I went through counseling. Because when you experience trauma as a leader, you have to understand the need to go through counseling. I went through it individually and corporately. And, you know, when you think you have it all together, you think you, you know, you're solid. And, you know, I know I've been telling people what to do and how to do it. And you realize you're broken. I didn't realize I was depressed until years later. You're sitting in the house in the dark. You know, you don't want to go anywhere on Christmas. You're not putting a Christmas tree up for two years. Something's wrong with that, right? It's because you are dealing with something. Deep grief is a process, not an event. We walk through the valley. We don't run. It was tough. And the reality is I got a chance to get away for a couple of weeks and I came back and I realized Sunday keeps coming. Life kept moving on. That was the toughest part about it because when something like that tragically happens, you're always wondering, does anybody know that something just happened? The world just picks up a sense of normalcy again and goes on like it never happened before. And I was still stuck in that time and stuck in that moment. And I began to realize something like this season of my life of leadership was teaching me so many lessons. There was so much stuff that was happening. And again, part of what I want to do for you is show you how to always take note of those signposts, never lose light of those lessons, right? Never lose sight of those lessons because those lessons are critical. They are necessary for you to learn some valuable things. For me, those lessons were powerful. Oh my goodness. Powerful lessons. Powerful lessons of coming to a church and um, experiencing this level of growth. What I didn't tell you is the opposition I experienced while that growth was taking place. Everybody wasn't excited about the church growing. So that got me to thinking, what lessons are there in this for you? Well, it is important to understand something. When an organization grows and when you have vision, it, it does not go without opposition. I'm always thinking about Nehemiah and thinking about the opposition he had, Tobiah, Sam Ballard. I'm thinking about what he had to deal with. And what I discovered, and what you'll discover, is that whenever change occurs, change brings about a level of anxiety upon every person. People deal with change in a variety of ways. This whole theme in my life was all about change that was happening at a warp speed, right? A lot of stuff was changing and events in my life. And when change happens, that anxiety comes and it stresses you some, to some degree because now you're trying to find out what your new normal is going to be. For an institution, for a business, when you bring about change in and it begins to grow, there are people who were stakeholders there who are trying to figure this out. For me, it was working this out. So early on in my process of, you know, when I was at Mount Zion, the church was growing, you know, I decided I, I need to go to continue education. So I went to Princeton and got my doctorate degree. And while I was at Princeton, this was before the track. I'm just back, back tracking to help you understand something. This is why I was able to work this out. I was able to work out this idea of learning to really pay attention to what was going on in the process of growth. I viewed the opposition as Demonic, I feel it as people just not having enough faith, people just not, you know, having enough drive until I began to realize that people were grieving the loss of the institution as they once knew it. 
that growth brings about that level of stress on a person. That there are people in my church that were saying, well, wow, what, what's going to happen to Mount Zion now? It's, it doesn't look like it always looked. And when you're a leader and you're bringing about change, you have to understand there's a stewardship to that. You don't just cash vision, you have to sow it. You have to make sure people understand it. You have to walk people through their own emotions, their EQ, how they react to, how they respond to, because that's critical as a leader. We just can't often come in with our ideas and say, this is the way it's going to be. People reject that. Light must be recessed to people who've been in darkness. You can't just take people who've been in darkness and turn light on. It must be gradually recessed. Like revelation must be gradually recessed and new ideas and thoughts. And that's what had to happen. What I learned in that process is that there are a lot of people who were there who loved me, who loved the church, but they were just disillusioned because they were seeing stuff they never saw before. When I was able to include them in the process, then I began to see that growth could really happen in a healthy way because when things grow healthy, they don't swell because things that swell have infections. I didn't want the church to have an infection. What I also discovered is that by building those relationships early on and bringing those folks alongside me, those are the folks that helped me get through the tragedy of my own life. You know, losing a spouse in the midst of pastoring a church. Let me talk to you about something. Let me talk to you about when leaders go through traumatic situations and how we're forced to lead while bleeding. Let me help you understand something. It is a difficult time when you are personally bleeding with your own personal stuff and you have to continue to lead people and lead them toward destiny and lead them toward fulfillment of goals. You see, when you lead without complaint and you still bleed and you still produce, it is realizing that you've been prepared for this moment. You've been built for this. You've been born for this. And every person has to understand everybody does it in a different way. And for me, it was tough because I had to be transparent about where I was. I had to be willing to cry before my congregation. I had to be willing to be vulnerable before my people. And see, if you allow people to have the narrative about you that you are just rock solid, you always have it together, that is the expectation. So when you have a need for community and for support, people will not show up because they think you got it. I was very clear. I'm hurting. I need a moment. I need community. I need help. And that's when I was able to draw upon the help and support of my congregation who helped me get through these difficult moments in my life. Maybe that's what you ought to do as well. Maybe it's a time for you to stop creating a narrative about yourself that's false, that you got it, that you're okay, that everything is fine. Everything is not fine. When leaders bleed, we have to be transparent. We have to be honest. Jesus bled, bled publicly. He yet led while he was bleeding. He yet ministered from the cross while he was bleeding, but it did not eradicate the reality that he was bleeding. Life hurts like that, man. You realize you were entrusted with something much greater. My experiences at Mount Zion and experiencing that growth and my experiences at Princeton through that doctorate program, losing my wife, those experiences I never shall forget because those are the experiences in my life that teach me the power of change and managing change, even if change doesn't feel right for me, I must be willing to yet use what I have had as a catalyst to get me to the next level. You're listening to this right now and you're saying to yourself, how can my pain propel me? Well, one thing is certain, don't let your pain paralyze you. Don't stay in a place of paralysis analysis and let yourself 
be so traumatized that you don't realize that God wants your trauma to be transformational. Your trauma should never truncate your destiny, but it should be transformational. Maybe it's something that should propel you into the next dimension, to the next level. Because everybody who's ever been entrusted with great things has been trusted with trouble. Maybe this is a rhetorical question for you, but can God trust you with trouble? And that's the question that all of us have to reconcile. Leadership is tough business, and it comes with a variety of experiences, and it comes with some very colorful past and experiences. Everybody who's ever been entrusted with something, Moses, Jeremiah, Ruth, everybody. They all have these moments, right? You have to look at life and say, all these things have happened so that this could happen. I believe that there is something extraordinary at work inside of you. And I believe, again, that all things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. May you learn the power of taking the pain, taking the trauma, taking the challenges, and using them as springboards for the manifestation of your vision coming to pass. That's what visionaries do. You don't stay in that place of lamentation. You don't stay in that place of complaint. You, you look at it and say, there was something I was supposed to get out of this, and I'm going to get it right now. I hope that this podcast today has encouraged you to understand the power of transparency. The truth of who we are as leaders is rooted in our ability to be transparent. As we continue on this journey, a podcast, I hope you know a little bit more about me so you can understand my evolutionary process. I, like you, have a story. And that story is a part of who we have been and who we shall become. Thank you again for tuning in. And I pray that something today has been said to inspire you, to encourage you, to empower you. Until then, peace. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast. I want you to subscribe at iTunes, cpnshows.com, or whatever podcasts are downloaded. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at josephwalker3. I look forward to connecting with you.